0: This is part two of our interview with Alex Craven, co-founder and CEO of Data City. Whilst this episode is packed full of great stuff, you may want to listen to last week's episode first, when Alex covered the launch of his business, a mind-bending receivership meeting, getting rid of 385 of 400 clients, and the huge growth triggered by the 2008 financial crisis. This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. If you're a business owner and you're feeling lonely at the top, give me a call. I can help. This week's episode includes the sale of Alex's previous business, the aftermath of the deal. Spoiler alert, it didn't go to plan, and the learnings that you can all take from it, and how Alex's ADHD influenced the whole of his career. Plus, there's a great how-to. So, Alex is about to tell us about the sale of his business. So, Alex, you've alluded to this. What was it, 2016 was the sale? Is that right? How did that come about?
1: We got this AI-driven bid management platform uh, for Google Ads. So um, I started showing it to people in other agencies, saying, what do you think of this? Could you use it? We're thinking about it, a software products, et cetera. And um, I showed it to chap who used to work for me, who who worked for um, uh, one of the companies that J-Wing had bought, Um, and that turned into a conversation with his boss who basically said, are you up for a conversation? And we'd been through a sort of near-miss process with one of the big four consulting firms um, the previous year, which had ended uh, without proceeding, although it got approved uh, for a deal to go through.
0: Uh, Let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. You can't just, you can't just say that and then just <laughs> go on. Okay. Rewind. Um, <laughs> how did, what, hap- what happened with that one? So we've done a lot of work with them over the years,
1: and then they were looking for uh, innovation through acquisition, I, I would think would be how I, I would phrase it. I'm not sure that's quite how they – they wanted to buy innovation, you know, and points of difference, try and make them less like a big four firm and more – yeah, you know, more exciting, perhaps. Um, uh, and there was some cool stuff we were doing, and we'd help them win some big pieces of work. Um, so that led to a conversation, and uh, and then, unfortunately, what happened is they had a restructure, and the board uh, that were doing all these deals were suddenly no longer in the company, <laughs> and all of the deals that had just been green lit were uh, no longer green lit, and uh, and that was the end of that. So, just you know, not anyone's fault, not just one of those things, but. Then, uh, then this conversation happened, and we weren't. We really weren't for sale, you know. It was like, um, you know, I said, "Well, I'll, you know, we'll have a chat," but you know, we're, we're not numbers-wise. We're not at a valuation point. I don't think where we'd look to get out, and we're really enjoying ourselves. And um, you know, we we are. We weren't starting to make really good money, but um, you know, I, I, my aspiration was for a high valuation. I believed I'd get at the time. Um, But essentially, I got introduced to then some higher up people uh, who, um, you know, met me in a pub and explained that we were either eating or drinking. I remember that was good. uh, It was good. (laughs) So we were drinking. And like eight pints later or whatever, uh, that led to a look, you know what are you are looking for? And I said, well, you know, you'd have, the valuation wise, it, it's not based on our current numbers. It'd have to be what you think we're worth. Um, so I presume, yeah, it's probably not anything, is it? And they went, well, uh, no, we can do that. Uh, and suddenly you're like, oh, ah, well, um, ah I'm in a process. <laughs> so we asked for some data. We sent that over. They made an offer. It was almost exactly the number we had internally
0: described wanting, uh, and and then we were in a process. Talk us talk us through the process. Then what's it what's it like if you're not ready to sell and then suddenly you are being sold or being bought?
1: So we were very lucky. Um, I, I had by this point surrounding myself with an amazing management team. And our management information, financial diligence um, was really good. So although we hadn't done it, we'd done it for ourselves. Actually, um, when when they said, okay, send us your business so that we can value it, it wasn't a lot of work. We, we got some good advice on what, how to put that together um and my ft who's amazing who's just joined the data city actually emma um and dave and, and the team just put you know put together this really good pack i remember the guy saying you know, they were doing they're very acquisitive and they actually turned around and said this is the best pack we've ever seen you know the side whether we go ahead or not just tell your team this is exactly what we the right level of detail in the right areas not too much not too little tells us exactly what we need to know about your business now to value it. Um, And then similarly through the due diligence process, uh, we were in a really solid position. You know, luckily I had the chair dealing with the sort of commercial legal side of it, amazing FD, commercial director, um, who shielded those of us who needed to keep focusing on growth and business from most of the process. So the actual sale process itself was, I mean, it's long. It was a PLC buying us. It was, you know, onerous from a – amount of information and the legal process was was robust. Uh, uh, there was a lot involved. Um, but, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, a lot of learnings. My, um, we, we should not have sold to them. Why do you say that? They were – so here's a big lesson. So this is the one thing I would say to anybody. Due diligence is a two-way process. Okay. I did not know that before the process. I have learned it through going through that it is as important for you to check them out as it is for them to check you out, even though you're selling your company. Uh selling to a loss making company um with, with a very poor outlook was not good for us. So it's you know it's in the all in the public domain, but they essentially had to go through a refinancing or else they would have gone bust about 18 months later. So they had they had to declare a concern over their going concern. Which crashed their share price and it's never recovered. Um, and obviously, suddenly they're in breach of all their covenants and all that sort of stuff. So they had to have a bailout, um, which does not make them minded to support any ongoing commitments to earnouts uh, and whatnot. Um, and so things got really tense. Um, the management team running the company uh, were all removed. <laughs> uh, Uh, rightly so and you know it it was on fire basically and we joined
0: as a successful profitable business and uh uh, very soon weren't (laughs) okay just just something just something you've mentioned there and and you know again this is a really big lesson for lots of people who are looking at selling just you mentioned earnouts there you'd have to give us numbers what was the structure of the sale deal uh,
1: so it was a total valuation of just under nine million um, payable over um, an upfront consideration and two um, earnout earn-out payments we smashed the first one by a country mile um, and then uh, we think we hit the second one uh, they disputed it we took them to court and lost so that's the that's the profile
0: so there's a there's a lesson there's a lesson I mean I I, I, I talk to clients about this all the time you know when you're selling a business there's there's two things to bear in mind one is one is the sale price the other is the sales structure yeah and if you you know the, sometimes it's the sales structure that's the issue not the price yeah well actually
1: I, I think the best piece of advice i ignored on this was my one of my really good friends who works in m&a said alex the deal is the first payment he said if that first payment isn't enough don't do the deal. Ninety percent of earnouts don't happen. Right. Okay. Okay. And I ignored him, <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I've told him he's right. because like, he said it might happen, it might happen, might not happen. And if it does happen, it should be seen as a really good positive bonus, not the not something you were counting on getting
0: to justify doing the deal. That is such such good advice. Anybody who's listening, who's thinking of selling just consider the first payment as the sale price and the rest of it as a bonus. And that will focus your mind on the structure. Yeah. Really good advice. (laughs) I was going to say, you managed to, uh, you managed to stay at J wing a couple of years and then you launched data city. Well, yeah, not really. Not really. Okay. (laughs) So
1: there was a second part of the deal, which was, um, spin out of the tech division into a new company. Um, which I was MD of and shareholder in um, with another earnout out personally worth about two million quid for me. Uh, so uh, I think I lasted 18 months, um, but um, I, mean, I, I mean, and essentially what that boiled down to was I was, things were going badly across their entire business. Everybody had to tighten their belts. So I was asked to make uh, recommendations for redundancy uh, in my Tiny team of, uh, I think it was eight of us or something running this tech division. Um, and uh, I just said, well, you, you, you know, everyone's a function, right? It's a small team. If you get rid of the salesperson, we're not going to any sales. You get rid of the developer, if we get any sales, we can't deliver them. Like this is crazy. I can't cut any of these heads and leave you with a business I believe can actually progress. So that ends my any hope of getting this. Second, um, it was like a put and call option. So it wasn't an earn out of such. It was a hit these targets and then I have the right to force them to buy my shares, A yeah. uh, pre-agreed evaluation. And, um, and then basically I said, look, you know, I, I, you're paying me to be an MD. So I, I'd sort of stopped running the earnout finished, uh, for bloom. So I was no mm-hmm. longer running that, that division. I was just running this one, but I was being paid like I was still running bloom, you know, um, and, I, and this new startup basically couldn't couldn't afford to pay its founder uh, that sort of money. So I just said, uh, "Why don't you just make me redundant? Like it's it doesn't need a me yet. It needs to develop this product stuff, and you've got this all this agency around it. Which if they just use the product, it will hit its numbers. Uh, and when it starts seeing its numbers, it can afford me." And when it can afford me, I'll come back or I'll work part time or anything. I was up for it. Yeah, I was up for anything which would keep the business viable without uh, my team losing their jobs. Uh, That did not go down well um, in a way which I still can't quite get my head around. Um, I I think probably embarrassment because I think the pitch internally was very much buying me to lead their tech innovation and having me leave would have basically undervalued the entire deal. Uh, Which. You know, probably, probably is what happened. I'm hypothesising because they they can't be straight with you, can they? They just tell you. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically, in the end, uh, and relationships between myself and my boss had uh, completely broken down at this point. Uh, and finally, finally, you know, this was in like May, uh, and by it took them to August to when I got back from holiday to finally accept that uh, that. I was going and they needed to uh, let me go. And I suspect that was to the great joy of my boss at the time. Because when I came into the office after my three-week holiday, I was uh, met by uh, one of the directors, uh, escorted to his office, then escorted to my desk, and then I escorted off the premises. Goodness me. <laughs> Which, Goodness me. Yeah. was... I, I couldn't help the laugh. <laughs> I was, I don't, I think <laughs> no. no, it was it felt very petty, uh, and I was just, just remember feeling this a huge sense of relief that it was over. Right. I hated yeah. every minute of it. They'd screwed me on my own. They were trying to get me to lay my team off. You know, it wasn't their fault, right? Uh, I hated working. At the, I just thought the management team were completely incompetent, totally out of their depth. I hated working for them. Uh, the culture of the place was, it was just awful. Um, and, you know, just this enormous, I, just remember, I remember this told me, and I just laughed. I actually laughed out loud and looked on their face. Uh, st- stay with me. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, anyway, that was it. I was out. Um, luckily, I had a really, really good legal position, so I was able to get some reasonable consideration for being let go. Um, so yeah, shout out to uh, Jonathan Priestley of what was the revolution, um, who have done a good job on my uh, personal terms there. Yeah.
0: Right. So, I mean, you know, this is a, a, a salutary lesson about business exits, the whole story. You know, I always say to people, you know, they don't write sort of chapter 11 of the business book. You know, chapter 10 is you sale and it's you, you sell and it's, it's champagne and corks. Nobody writes chapter 11 and chapter 11 has all sorts of different things in it for different people. So you're out of J-Wing. How did Data City come about? Yeah, so while I was running Bloom before we entered the sales process,
1: um, we'd started a meetup for the data community in Leeds called Leeds Data Thing. And through that, we started meeting people from other worlds, Uh, So it attracted not just uh, sort of corporate marketing people, but people from uh, the NHS and other data. You know, the the theme was data, not marketing, which is where my world was. And through that, I met a chap called uh, Paul Connell, who's one of the co-founders in the data city now, who was starting a business called Open Innovations. uh, So it's called the Open Data Institute uh, then. It's now called Open Innovations, which was... um, like a franchise model from uh, the Open Data Institute was an initiative set up by Tim Berners-Lee, the chap who invented the internet, to try and promote open access to information on the internet. Um, and it's still still going. Um, and the model was like a not-for-profit with sponsorship to, for participation in uh, an event space and innovation-focused sort of um, uh, projects and work streams. And so Paul, I met Paul. You know, and Paul pitched this idea to me, and I, I just thought that sounded that sounds really interesting. Like it's 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 one of those things where like I, I really believed in him, like, as an individual, who was going to make a good go of it. Uh, and I'm uh, very attracted to innovation, and it seemed obvious to me that something needed to happen in that space around data. We just we'd we'd already positioned around data, so um, why not? Yeah. So we agreed to sponsor him. And um, then Tech Nation did a report first. Uh, Tech Nation just been formed, and they did their first uh, report in 2014, which was a database of all the digital agencies in the UK. And Bloom was pretty big. It was top 100. It was top five in Leeds. Um, and so, obviously, I eagerly looked at this report from the trade association representing my sector uh, to find my company was not in this database, Um and obviously I was deeply offended by this. So then I started looking for my peers and I couldn't find about three out of four of them were missing in Leeds. So then I started looking at Manchester and it was the same story there. And then I thought, I'm going to look at London where Nation are based. And they'd missed like the world's largest digital agencies. I headquartered round the corner from them, you know, employing 20,000 people listed, you know, listed businesses, um, and I just thought, what the hell, this is rubbish. Um, so I read the methodology, and the methodology um, basically pointed to they'd started with SIT codes. So when you incorporate a company, you have to tick a little box at a company's house, so that's what you do. And there isn't one for digital agency. So what they'd done is picked ITT and computing, which I think has about 70,000 companies in it from memory, and then tried to manually sift out the IT companies from the digital you know, companies. Uh, and presumably, whichever poor sod had been asked to do that, gave up the will to live somewhere during that process and uh, (laughs) uh, and stopped because what they didn't do was look at advertising and marketing, which is where most of us were, were based or other business services, not elsewhere classified, which is um, a sort of bucket for loads of businesses. About 15% of the UK business base is in that. Um, And, This uh, AI-powered bid management platform we built was based around um, a web scraping methodology, so it would look at price uh, competitiveness across platforms. So this report got toured, and I basically stood up and said, it's rubbish in front of a room of people. Paul was there. And um, and I I thought we could do better using web scraping. And uh, Leesia Council and KPMG came up to me afterwards and sort of said, that's quite an interesting thing to say, Alex. How much? Um, And we went through a procurement exercise and won it. Uh, Paul and I went to the pub and went, right, uh, well, basically we produced the data, you know, um, bid bid for it with Paul, um, decided to do it through this partnership that we'd we'd formed. And um, uh, presented the data, asked them what they wanted to do with it, at least the accounts said, well, we'd like you to put it on a website so we can reference it. So we went to the pub, had a couple of pints, came up with the Date city's name. I went and built a website that afternoon uh, using Squarespace, five pound a month uh, thing. Um, and basically it went mental. Um, we had half a million pounds worth of contracts over eighteen months without trying. So we won um, just as uh, local industrial strategy project. You know, this is a company. It wasn't even a company actually at the time. It was... Um, it was either build through Bloom or build through the Open Data Institute. You know that Paul was running. We sort of alternated projects as the you know the front end of it I had no no staff I had nothing I had a website I built in fifteen minutes and I I remember giving one of my creators twenty minutes to design the logo. I went in and said, "You've got no more <laughs> Data City. That's the brief. Right, like, give me a logo." And to bless him, he did. Um, yeah, and then uh. Obviously, we didn't sell – because it was a JV with Paul, We, we it, it was carved out from the sale of Bloom, thank God, uh, and uh, continued to grow while my career at uh, um, SPLC was going to shit. And, um, sorry, am I allowed to swear? I don't know. Uh, um, I'll have to tick the explicit box now. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, as part of my exit, I had 12 months gardening leave. But I had a carve out to work on the data city, um, so we basically took it through a proper thought. All right, okay. So, like Paul was like, "Come and do it, come and run it, come on." And uh, so, I, so we went through a business plan. I took it through a business planning exercise and thought, right, well, what am I going to do next? Um, had the luxury of all this time. Um, how big could it be? You know, is it UK or global? It's global. So by the time I've been through that process, there were no reasons not to do it. You know, I was like, I don't want to run an agency again. Definitely don't want to do managed services again. I want to do a tech product. I'd really enjoyed the technology division stuff that we'd done in Bloom. Um I wanted to build something that could exit for, you know, significant valuations. So the SaaS um, uh, platform obviously gets much higher multiples. And I wanted to do something where there was a real, you know, like – um actually might change the world a little bit. Um, and, and it just, metal, it ticked all those boxes. You know, wh- what we do is address a systemic failure in the way that the world's industries are, um, are understood. Um, you know, the SIC ecosystem was last updated in 2007. So there are no SIC codes for digital, but there's equally there's none for medtech, health tech, uh, femtech, um, net zero. And these are the areas of the economy which are going to save the planet, save lives. Um, You know, almost all investment decisions hang off um, SIC codes or understanding of industries. Uh, And all policy, GDP, GVA calculations are all run on this flawed out-of-date system. Um, All insurance premiums or bank lending or bank account opening processes, everything. It's just everywhere. So what we've done is tried to fix that problem. You know, we, we've came up with a, uh, uh, an alternative classification system to SIT uh, to codes, um, and we've built a really differentiated company database. Um, and, you know, so far, that's going
0: pretty well. Fantastic. Now, there's a couple of things you've mentioned and I want to go back to. Um, and the first one references uh, what we do every week is we ask our clients, sorry, our clients, our guests. Uh, to give us a how-to. And you've mentioned innovation, and I know your how-to is in that space. So give us five minutes on how we're going to do it, how to innovate or how to be innovative.
1: There was a little trend uh, during the sort of 2010s where people started spinning out labs. And there was a sort of like, we're going to be innovative. Okay, let's create a lab, put innovation in this box over there. They'll do innovation. Uh, And then we're innovative, aren't we? And um, and that sort of – I think now, I think looking back on that, I think most of us would accept that that's not doing innovation. That's ticking a box on innovation. And when you spoke to the people working in those labs, I think invariably their experience was they'd get very excited, get given a load of money, they'd come up with loads of innovation, and then the company that they were doing it for would reject it. Because uh, it's um, – I, I went to a, an event of CEOs um, – uh, the other week and there was a great quote from that which is founders have got two problems the first is a people problem and the second is the amount of time it takes the founders to identify that they've got a people problem and and I just love that because that's innovation is, an, is about culture and people um, and if you want to do innovation in your business you you can't put it in a box over there what you need to do is persuade your organization that it needs to innovate and that could be an existential, you know, existential threat level requirement, right? This might be used, the business leader saying, right, this is a market which was great, but is now massively consolidating, hugely competitive. It's only downward pressure on price, very hard to differentiate. Um, everything's hard. We need to move, Right. So for me, innovation is about culture um, and the the sort of approach, the guidance or the tools I've learned in in this process are, first of all, you've got to – it's a bit like sales. You've got to establish the need. So if you walk in as a business leader and tell your team to be innovative, they'll just look at you going, what what do you mean? Like I'm quite comfortable in my little box. So it involves a bit of honesty. You know, I think if you're worrying that you're facing an existential threat, you've got to find a way to – create that sense of burning platform in your team without terrifying them. Um, uh, So there are, that's your first, your first key. And, and, and actually it's not rocket science. You just need to do stuff like a market review, like where are we, what are competitors doing? What, you know, and actually you can make that quite a positive experience. You can say, you know, do some gap analysis, do some quite traditional, you know, marketing positioning uh, work Uh, A really brutally honest strengths and weakness exercise. Um, A SWOT analysis I think is, you know, it gets a bad press I I say, but actually I still find them really valuable. I I think like most things, if you do it well, it's good. And if you do it badly and you duck your real weaknesses and you duck your threats, then you will get nothing but value from it. But um, being honest about where you are uh, in the context of having done some research on your competition and speaking to your customers, you know, getting real, again, asking customers because then, once that voice of the customers in the room, and once you're looking at your competitors, and you actually look at them, as a team, look at their websites, you know, get real experience of what they're doing that's that's better than you, and don't pretend to yourself that you're the only ones who are any good and everyone else is rubbish. Go and be respectfully, um, sort of, uh, ad, you know, admire your customers for what they do well and aspire to to be as good as them at those bits. Um, and if you can create that sense of Understanding about the need of the business to change, then you can start talking about innovation as part of the solution. Yeah. And um, I think people get scared by the word because they think they have to be some sort of, you know, Elon Musk esque um, genius. Um, But actually, it could be innovation in efficiency of process, right? It could be innovation of customer experience. It could be innovation. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking data science or uh, technology, but it could be. You know, and the point is to create the space in the business where people start to think about that stuff um, and then create some sort of structure and process that allows them to express those ideas um, and then act on them. And that's the mo- perhaps the most important thing. You, What you must not do is create the space for innovation and then fail to do anything because the next time you need your team to come up with ideas, they will just not bother. You can't act on all of them. But you can, as a team, decide which ones to progress with. Right? You can say that is great. We've got fifteen amazing ideas here. We've we've explained where we are in the market. We've explained what competition are doing. This is a place we think we could be truly world class at. So therefore, we're going to prioritise this area. You know, and you've got to pick your fight based on your company's uh, dynamics, and then you win it, and then everyone then it becomes that you know that becomes a virtuous cycle of um, people believing that. Reviewing the company, stepping back, taking the company through through a formal review, identifying where it needs to move to, bringing the whole team with you on that journey becomes part of the culture. Next time it's easier. Next time after that it's expected. Then and, and off you go.
0: Brilliant, fantastic. That is that is great. And I think obviously one of the you know one of the key things there is is not wait till you have an existential problem to be innovative. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Much better done anticipating
1: it than uh, yeah, finding do it yourself. Before, in it. Do it
0: before you uh, get and that
1: problem. Then you money to do innovation, yeah, you're running out of cash. So yeah, very, very. Because yeah. innovation might cost, might require
0: investment, right? And, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that this has been a long episode, but uh, I'm happy it's been a long episode because Alex, you've covered a, an absolute ton of brilliant, brilliant stuff. I have to take you all the way back to one of the things you said very, very early on about the ADHD. Mm-hmm. Just touch on touch on how that how you think that's affected your whole. I assume if it, if it's been there all the time, how it's affected you as a business owner, your business career yeah. journey.
1: So um, the way I describe starting the company is very typically ADHD. So it, a part of the symptoms of ADHD, it, it's it's an individual condition. So this is not the same for everyone. Um, but I, I definitely have uh, an aspect of ADHD, which is referred to as oppositional defiance disorder. Um, And that means not that I oppose everything everyone tells me to do or that I'm uh, totally unrulable, but it does make me, I I only follow rules I believe in uh, and it makes me very hard to manage. Um, And when people are doing stuff that I don't agree with, I uh, also will make it very obvious that that's how I feel, which in a corporate environment uh, goes down like a a bag of cold sick, I think is the the phrase I would to use. Uh, The you know, you're expected to just go on with it, right? And and that I just don't have the ability to do that. So my reflection is I am unemployable um, and or, or I have to find a very specific type of place to be employed with. And that, that probably is a lot of people who act and think and feel like me or are very tolerant of people like me. Um, I have a very high risk appetite. Again, I don't really see it as risk. I just see it as something, an opportunity we can get through. Which can scare people who are perhaps less uh, like me, um, but also is part of the reason for my success. Um, uh, I have a really heightened sense of injustice, which again is, comes with the, the part of the system. So when I think my boss is being an idiot and I think he's been unfair, you know, it really triggers me. Um, so yeah, all, all of that. Um, so I think on reflection, I could have. Only, I was only ever going to work for myself. Um, And and I do a talk now called uh, ADHD Pirates Entrepreneurship and the Selfie that cost me two and a half million pounds because the way I ended my relationship with my boss was uh, over expenses Um, where we had a horrific meeting where we were losing loads of money as a company. It was awful. And then we went to this amazing new restaurant in Leeds called Home, which had just opened. And um, the... uh, (laughs) Uh, and at the end of it, I was like, it's fantastic. I'm absolutely taking clients here. And I was told, you absolutely are not. And I was like, this triggered all of mine. because I was already not in a good place with his uh, uh, competence um, and approach. But I was like, I just found that offensive. I was like, so we'll spend money on ourselves after that meeting, but you won't let me take the people who are the lifeblood of our company out when in context where I know that was only an increased spend I might actually change that meeting. So obviously what I immediately did is took clients there, took a selfie and sent it to him. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I've got that selfie still. Uh, and that talk uh, ends with that selfie Um so me and two of my business partners going, don't do this, Alex. Don't do this, Alex. Don't do this, Alex. And you can see their faces in the selfie like this. And my client, uh, who's, yeah, who's, who's still a good friend of mine,
0: but um, yeah, that was the end of my relationship with my boss. Right, right. And do you, actually just just think about that. You know, if you're if you're if you're risk averse because you can't see the risk, I'm not risk averse. I'm. I, I mean, you, you don't see the risk, so you just right, we'll go, we'll go and do that. Do you think that's that, – surely that's been beneficial to the business as well, though, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's an entrepreneurial trade, right? I see an opportunity, and there are things that can go wrong, which I just believe we're going to manage and get through. And more times than not, we do. Um, but at the same time, uh, sometimes you get to the side of it, and you look back, and you think, who actually, that could have – that, was, you know, that wasn't a brilliant idea bit of luck <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> bit of luck happened there and yeah. You know, but equally you know choosing to fight a law okay lawsuit so, you know all that stuff all, all manifests it it's all part of it sending my boss that selfie you know it, it, it's all me uh, taking risks and uh, for various reasons which somebody neurotypical might be less likely to take um but and, and you know, there's a there's a lot of ADHD in entrepreneurship, a lot of it because we don't do stuff like consider our mortgage or our family uh, and the financial risk we're taking if it all goes wrong. We just we just think there's this amazing idea that we're going to go
0: pursue and we go pursue it. Um, uh, yeah, I think you might I think you might have just uh, you might have just identified ADHD in me as well because <laughs> I actually I. Act- I actually ended up giving up a very, very good job uh, at a, a digital agency whose name you'll probably know um, because my business, my new business, which wasn't making any money, might be a success. <laughs> I've got one one last thing. We ask all our clients. So I keep saying clients. You're not a client. Uh, we get all our guests, all our guests to give a shout out to another leads company. But before you do, I've got a couple of shout outs to give. Um, the first is to Robert Smart. It's the UK's oldest and largest independent flexible packaging manufacturer, employs 220 people here in Leeds. Founded in 1852, now run by sixth generation of the Roberts family, uh, they supply, and it says on their website, innovative, effective, and environmentally aware packaging solutions. So to you and me, that's shrink films, bags and pouches, paper packaging, cold and heat seal films, and you'll find them find them at www.com roberts-mart.co.uk. The second company I need to give a shout out to is Clarity Wealth. They're an FCA authorized independent financial advisor who specialize in working with business owners and entrepreneurs, uh, which is where they feel they add most value. They're based in Horsforth, team of six, and you can find them at www.claritywealth.co.uk. Why am I giving them a shout out? Well, both of them were good enough to sign up to our priority list on the website and then post a review at Apple Podcasts. So go and do that, and I'll give your business a shout-out. So thanks to Ben Roberts at Robert Smart and thanks to Richard Platt at Clarity Wealth. So, Alex, who's your shout-out for?
1: I'm going to give a shout-out to George uh, Fairhall, who runs a company called WAC. Um, So she's a relative to me, young entrepreneur who identified a – Problem where, um, particularly, shift workers um, are perhaps not actually getting paid for the hours they work. So, she's created an app solution for that. She's just embarking on a a 1 million Series A. And um, it's a really, I just think, as a business proposition and actual solution that is needed in the market. It offers a lot. It's obviously there to help make sure that people get paid what they're owed. And that it basically you know, works by geolocating you. So you know when you arrived, you know when you left, you know what you were doing and you can keep a log of it. But also in the process, what it does is it collects data on large employers and helps make sure that we've getting a sort of fair workforce uh, treatment uh, piece out there. And there's a lot of data that's valuable to, perhaps even to those employees themselves about their own workforces. So. I think uh, she's got a great business. She's a great founder, and she she deserves a, a shout out.
0: Okay, fantastic. All uh, all links to to her and to Clarity Wealth and Robert Smart will be in the show notes. Um, Alex, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you ever so much. It's been so much brilliant learning in there. It's it's great. Thank you ever so much, indeed. Thank you. Cheers, Phil. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on. Do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.